Our New Testament reading today is in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. The Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And our sermon text is in the book of Judges, chapter 13, beginning in verse 15. Judges 13, 15. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name? seeing it is wonderful. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus, strong and kind. I love that last song. That song is just so profound in its simplicity. It touches my heart every time we sing it. And I pray that in our study of these names of Jesus and and titles and descriptors of our Lord that you are rediscovering uh, or discovering afresh and anew the, the strength and the kindness of Jesus. His authority and his grace his goodness, and his power. That's the goal of this series that we're in uh, this summer and beyond. And uh, so I pray that's happening. I pray the Spirit of God is having his way in our hearts, and he is revealing more and more of God's Son to us for our good and his glory. In today's, uh, as you know, the the sermon texts are, are, are... series is a little different because normally when we're going through a book or, or whatever, we stay camped in a text and we kind of exegete the text. But that's not, the, that's not what we're doing with this study. We're, we're using text to sort of springboard us into the study. And then the, the texts that we use for the names of Jesus are the ones we are kind of unpacking. 
But I've always loved this passage. I've always loved this passage. If you're not familiar with it, this is the account of the encounter between the parents of Samson, uh, the famous strong Israelite judge, the, the encounter between his parents and the angel of the Lord, which we've already studied as a, as a title for the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, and quick side note, I, I just want to encourage you to, when you're reading the Bible and reading the Old Testament, always look for, for Jesus in those readings. And you might be wondering, well, I've read about Samson, man, uh, he was kind of crazy. He was, yeah, he was strong and killed a lot of Philistines and with weird ways, you know, with jawbones and, and tied foxtails together and all this wild stuff. Uh, you know, how does Samson, how does this guy point us to Jesus? Well, we see, so we see one in this text. His birth was announced by an angel. And then if you know his story... When, when was Samson's greatest victory? In his death. In his death. When he brought down the house over the enemy. Died to, to kill the enemy. So there you go. There's Jesus. Jesus' greatest victory was in his death. When he defeated Satan, crushed his head, paid for our sin. Every story whispers his name. And so always look for Jesus when you're reading the word of God. But in this particular account here, um, we've got the angel of the Lord appearing to Manoah. Manoah didn't know who it was at first. And in, if you back up in verse 3 of chapter 13, you see that uh, the angel of the Lord has, has already told Manoah's barren wife that she will conceive and bear a son. And much excitement ensues from that, and Manoah and his wife uh, pray that the messenger will return so they will know what to do with this child that's, that's coming. And God hears their prayer, and the angel returns, and that's what we're reading about here. And our sermon text picks it up at verse 15, but our focus will be on verses 17 and 18, but really the intense focus will be on one word, okay? Remember what, in verse 17, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. Now that word wonderful is a great word. It's a great Hebrew word. It's an interesting word. It literally means things like uh, fantastic, uh, incomprehensible, uh, beyond understanding. Um, that is pertaining to that which is impossible to understand with a focus on it as a marvelous, positive mystery of an extraordinary nature making it mysterious or difficult to comprehend now beloved is that describing Jesus or what beyond our comprehension yes hard to understand yes some how does how does how does God become man 
Listen, if you can fully understand Jesus, you're, you're, you're not thinking about Jesus. You know, there, there are things that are totally mysterious. How, how does God incarnate say, I don't know when I'm returning? Mysterious. Beyond comprehension. Why do you ask me my name? Seeing it is wonderful. Some other translations, uh, Lexham English Bible. Why do you ask my name? It is too wonderful. You're never going to get to the end of the wonder of my name. So why even bother? Or the New English, you should not ask me my name because you cannot comprehend it. You're treading in on holy ground. We are treading on holy ground as we study the names of Jesus, the one who is wonderful, the one who is beyond our peanut brain comprehension. We see this, this hard attitude displayed in, in Scripture on more than one occasion. For example, the psalm that we took our memory verse from for this month in honor of our VBS and also in honor of the overturning of Roe v. Wade uh, in Psalm 139, David begins that psalm like this in verses 1 to 6. He says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, what, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. In other words, you know me thoroughly. You know me completely. There is not a hidden fiber of my being that you can't see. You, you know me completely. He goes on, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. God knows what I'm fixing to say to you before I say it. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. And then, then David says this, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. It is high. It is above me. It is beyond me. I cannot attain it. So please know that in our study of the names of Jesus and in our getting to know Jesus, we're never going to get to the end of that road in this life. And Jonathan Edwards thinks not even in the life to come will we get to the end of that road. We will forever be getting to know Jesus because of his wonderfulness. Paul expresses this wonder in Romans 11, 33. You're, you're familiar with this. After he unpacks or tries to unpack or attempts to unpack uh, from our point of view, it's, it's one of the most difficult and challenging sections of Scripture that Romans 9 to 11, 
where he talks about election and uh, the role of Israel and true Israel and man, just a challenging uh, portion of scripture. And Paul ends it by saying, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. He could have said right there the same thing that David said. It is too wonderful. It is too high. I cannot attain it. So the bottom line of all this introductory talk is this. If you're not blown away by Jesus, you're probably not connected to Jesus. If you're not overwhelmed at times in your striving to know and understand Christ, you may not be a Christian. If your connection, your professed connection to the Son of God is infiltrated and permeated with apathy and nonchalance, and business as usual, and go through the motions, then you may not be born again. So I encourage you to examine yourself today as we study these names and these titles, these descriptors of Jesus for today. Jesus' name is too wonderful to comprehend fully in this feeble life and with our small mental capacity. So, does that mean we throw in the towel on it? No, not at all. We read and we listen to teaching and we study God's word and we grasp at the hem of the garment of Jesus, like the woman with the bleeding issue, remember? If I can just touch the hem of his garment. That, that should be our thought process. If I can just grab the hem of the garment of who he is, that will empower me to press on in knowing him. So we, we reach for that hem and we trust the Holy Spirit to teach us what we can understand and wait for the glorious knowledge that is to come when we see him. And, and while the Spirit is doing that, guess what? As we've already said in this study, he's making us more like Jesus. As we behold his glory in the study of his names that Scripture gives us, we are being transformed into his image. From glory to glory, from one level of glory to the next, from one level of Christ's likeness to the next. That's happening. That's happening. So rejoice in that, fellow brother and sister. Rejoice in that. Let's press on in knowing Jesus, the one whose name is wonderful. Let's pray. God, help us today. Help us today. We confess that we're in deep water. And we need you to help us swim it. 
So by your grace, come today and teach us a little bit more about your son. Help us to receive it. Help us to grasp it. As we come with the attitude of David, such knowledge is is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it, but I want to try. So help us today, Father. Teach us about Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you're following along on your sermon sheet, we got more names of Jesus here. The first one for today, we're in the letter F. Uh, so uh, we're, we're going to talk about Jesus as the firstborn. The firstborn. We sang it, okay? One of our scripture songs that Ty's written for us from Colossians. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then three verses later, Scripture says this, and he is the head of the body, still talking about Jesus. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn, there's our term, the firstborn from the dead, okay? So firstborn of all creation and firstborn from the dead that he might, that he, that in everything he might be preeminent, preeminent. That's a key word in us understanding this term firstborn. Now, the term firstborn in the Greek, it can mean the first person born chronologically. So in my family, in my immediate, I would be the firstborn of my other three brothers. I would be the firstborn. It can mean that, okay? But it is more commonly used as a word to refer to preeminence in position or rank. John MacArthur uh, sets it out like this and explains it for us like this. In both Greek and Jewish culture, the firstborn was the ranking son who had received the right of inheritance from his father, whether he was born first or not. Jesus is the firstborn in the sense that he has the preeminence and possesses the right of inheritance over all creation. And that's what verse 18 is basically pointing out. He's the firstborn over all, over, from the dead in, that he might have preeminence. There's the key word of connection there to define this term firstborn. He existed before creation and is exalted in rank above it. So as firstborn over all creation, He's over all creation. Doesn't mean he's the first created being. Just means he has preeminence over all of creation. He has first place in everything. Then, from verse 18, as firstborn from the dead, he was the first to be resurrected and never to die again. That's that's important to understand that because a lot of people say, well, no, no, no. He wasn't the first to be resurrected. You know, Lazarus was resurrected before him. Jairus' daughter was resurrected before him. Well, but they died again. Okay, they died again. Jesus was resurrected never to taste death again. So 
he not only has preeminence over all creation, he has preeminence in this area as well, in the area of resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead. So the bottom line, bottom line, very simple bottom line of this term is Jesus is supreme over all things and over all creation. And therefore the question for us as we examine ourselves before we come to the table this morning is what is his place in my life? Is he firstborn in my life? Is he preeminent over all things in my life? Second term we want to look at today comes from Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. John is writing this. God gave him these glimpses of the future. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So Jesus, our Lord, is faithful and true. Faithful and true. In other words, he is totally, absolutely, perfectly, without blemish, without spot or stain. He is perfectly trustworthy. You can count on him completely. He is faithful and he's true. When he says we are forgiven, we are. When he says he will complete the work that he began in us, he will. When he says he will never leave us nor forsake us, he won't. When he says he is preparing a place for us, he is. When he says he will come again, he will. And when he says that he loves us, he does. And as our great high priest, he is praying that we will grasp the immensity and the magnitude and the depth of his love for us. And using the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit put that prayer into words for us in Ephesians chapter 3. Listen to this in verses 14 to 19. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, now listen to this prayer, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. It's a corporate prayer. It's a prayer for all of us. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, do you, do you see what Jesus is praying for you? Do you see what your high priest is praying for you? He is praying that you will know something 
that can't be known. Now, what does that mean? It's too wonderful. I cannot attain it. I can't understand it. What does that mean? Help me understand this, Father. Help me understand this. I believe it's this. Throw my hat in the ring as to why I think Jesus is praying for us. That we would know the immensity of his love. And Paul uses the words like breadth and length and height and depth. Okay? That we would comprehend with all the saints the vastness of Jesus' love. In other words, to know this love. To know this love in our heart. Now, again, I know the text doesn't say that. But how do we explain knowing something that can't be known, okay? So here's my feeble attempt at, at, at interpretation. Jesus is praying that we will know in our heart the place where the new heart that we've been, we've been given, the place where sanctification happens, change happens, okay? That we would know in our heart the love of Christ that surpasses simply the knowledge of the head. Okay? Jesus, I believe Jesus is praying that we would know here what can't be known here. Because when we try to know it just here, it, it, it falls out. <laughs> And you know people like that. You've seen people like that. Multiple faces of young people back way, way back when I was a youth pastor who knew this love only in their head. It's gone. It's gone. Those faces are flashing before my mind right now. It's gone because it wasn't here. Jesus is praying that we will know his love for us here, which can't be known here. It surpasses mental knowledge. It's got to happen here for it to stick, for it to be real, for it to be sanctifying, for it to be life-changing, for it to be God's, one of God's instruments to make you more like Jesus. It's got to be here so our high priest is praying for us that we would know his love here and not here. Here surpasses here. Here is required. Here doesn't stick. Ah, I pray that makes sense to you. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, head knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So I ask you this morning, have you placed your faith in the one who is faithful? Have you placed your faith in the one who is faithful? Do you have the new heart that can grow in the knowledge of the love of Jesus? That you will never be separated from, according to Romans 8. 
Nothing will separate you from this love. Quick additional note to this one. Uh, Self-examination note before we come to the table. Because Jesus is faithful, we who have his spirit indwelling us should be too. Okay? Because we are being made like him, right? He is faithful and true. And we are being made like him. So the examination question is, are you a person of your word? Are you a person of your word? When you say you will do something, do you do it? Are you faithful? Faithful and true. Okay. All right. Third one. This is our camp. This is our camp uh, phrase. I always like to camp on one of them. This is it. Number three, friend of sinners. Jesus is friend of sinners. So we're going to pull out the pup tent and the Coleman stove and we're going to pull out the tarp and we're going to camp a little bit here on this one. And I get this from Luke chapter 7, uh, verses 31 to 34. Jesus is speaking and he says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. In other words, what did, no matter what we did, you didn't like it. You know, we were happy-go-lucky, and you didn't laugh along with us. You made fun of or, or we were somber and serious, and you didn't like that either. So, so what's the deal? And then he attaches that to John the Baptist. He says, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. So John the Baptist comes being real serious. And you say he's demon possessed. And then son of man, Jesus, I come attending parties and festivals. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Isn't it interesting that Christ's enemies are the ones who actually gave him this name? Friend of sinners, friend of tax collectors and sinners. We're going to drop the tax collector for our purposes because not as, not, not as pertinent, I guess, as it was in that day. Uh, but it's, it's interesting that this name was actually given to Jesus by his enemies. They thought, they thought friend of sinners was a derogatory name. But we think it's a beautiful name. We need a friend. We need a, we're sinners. We desperately needed someone to love us. Someone to lay down his life for us. And so while, his, while the Pharisees attached that name to him in derision, we rejoice over this name. And, and guess what? So does Jesus. So does Jesus. I love what Glenn Scribner says uh, in, in reading between the lines. He says, in the minds of these accusers, friend of sinners was a shameful epithet. But Jesus owns the title with pride. He is indeed a friend. The friend of sinners. 
Hallelujah. And praise the Lord. Speaking of friends, I just, my eyes just fell on Mastin and Jenny Boyd and their family back there. Unbelievable. Man, we've got Mo, we've got Mastin. What a great day. What a great day. Okay. Don't leave now. Don't leave. Don't rush off. I want to talk to you. Okay. Okay. So we're going to camp here for a little bit. And to do that, we're going to go to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. And we're going to look at the, 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 the saving of Levi, who, who became Matthew, who we know is more commonly as Matthew. Okay. Mark chapter 2. And uh, we'll pick up at verse 13. Now, remember what we're doing here. We're camping on friend of sinners. Friend of sinners, okay? And uh, verse 13 in Mark chapter 2. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him, okay? Uh, irresistible grace, right? Okay, there we go. The eye and tulip. He, Jesus said, come on, and he followed him, okay? And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So let's see, what, let's unpack this. What we got here, okay? Levi, Levi Matthew has just gotten called, gotten the call, okay, to follow Jesus. And he is so excited about Jesus and his new direction in life, he throws a party for his friends, most of whom were his fellow tax collectors. Luke in the Gospel of Luke, we, Luke calls it a great feast. It's a big deal. It's a big party. And everybody is reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So here's what I think is happening. Matthew has been given a great salvation. So he, he spontaneously responds out of the newness of his life with a great banquet in honor of his great Savior. And he says that everyone is reclining, reclining. They're not rushed like we are today. They're taking their time. They're soaking it in. They're enjoying the fellowship. Yeah, probably some of them are enjoying the wine a little bit too much or whatever. But they're reclining. They're, they're going nowhere. They're there. They're rejoicing and they're feasting. They're eating, which symbolized acceptance and friendship. That was a big deal in that day. Sharing a meal together. Huge sign of fellowship and being together, and they're having a good time, and, and Jesus is, is probably preaching and teaching, and Matthew maybe is giving testimony about Jesus, and, and some of the other uh, disciples are chiming in. Maybe it's like uh, you old solid rockers, the old camp, uh, open mic time we used to have at camp, okay? Uh, 
Salvation testimonies only, right? Okay, so uh, yeah, you never know what you're going to get at open mic. Big risk there. Out on the limb, out on the limb. But I've always learned that out on the limb is where the fruit is. Okay, so sometimes you got to go out on the limb. All right. But anyway, another message for another time. So everybody's reclining, everybody's enjoying one another. Everybody's listening, talking, sharing, eating, asking questions. And can you just see, can you see Levi Matthew? Can you just see him beaming? Kind of looking over the, you know, sometimes I like to, I like to stand up here after a service and just watch y'all. Just watch y'all interact, fellowship, mingle, take a long time to leave. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And I see Matthew doing that, just kind of looking over the crowd and saying, Man, I hope every one of these hear what Jesus is saying. I pray that he will call them like he called me. Okay, I can just see him. I mean, speculating, nothing in scripture. Okay, take it, leave it, flush it, or chunk it. Okay, but that's what I see. That's what I see happening. Now, without a doubt, he is using his house, his domicile, his dwelling place, he is using his home and his wealth to promote Jesus. That's the bottom line. He's using his stuff to promote Jesus, to put him on display before his scummy friends. Because think about it, that's probably the only kind of people he knew. Because the rank and file Jewish person wanted nothing to do with tax collectors. So the only friends he probably had were fellow tax collectors. And he's using his wealth. He's using his possessions. He's using his home to put Jesus on display to his fellow tax collectors and to his fellow sinners who desperately need the good news of Jesus. He is using his material goods to honor his newfound friend. Or to put it more correctly, the friend that found him. So let's stop right here and ask ourselves a question. What do we do to promote our Savior? What do we do to honor Jesus. Matthew sponsored a banquet to let others know about Christ and to put him on display. How do we put Jesus on display in our lives? I want you to really think about that this week, starting right now. I really want you to think about that. Many of you did that last week at VBS. You put Jesus on display to a bunch of children. You do it when you open yourself up and your home up to others. We've got several, a few that have mentioned hosting small groups. That's putting Jesus on display. You do it when you speak out for Jesus and the truth and the principles of his word. You're doing it anytime you point others to Jesus. Now think about this. Every time we roll out that box over there and fill it up with water and put it over there behind Celeste and Nisha and, and, uh, 
And who's that dentist? Okay, every time we roll that box out, and every time somebody climbs into that box and gets in the water and goes under the water and is raised up out of the water, every time we do that, guess what? Jesus is put on display every time. Matthew's banquet was a testimony to Jesus and his life-changing gospel. The baptism of a believer is also a testimony to Jesus and to what he has done in our lives. Under the water, crucified with him. Sins condemned, paid for. Raised up out of the water. Resurrection with Jesus. New life in him. The baptism screams how we have been crucified with Christ and raised to new life with him. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you a professing Christian that has not been baptized? Why is that? Well, what is the answer to that? We read in Acts chapter 5 where the apostles were rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to be beaten for the name of Christ. And a professing believer won't get wet? What's going on with that? Shame? I mean, what, what is going on with that? I, for the life of me. I don't understand that. It's too high for me. It's not, but it's not wonderful, okay? Matthew was not ashamed. Scully friends, come to my home. Everybody, all of you, come here. Here's Jesus. Here's the guy that's changing my life. Here's the reason I left the tax table. Here he is. So, every time a believer is baptized, without saying a word, they are shouting, Here he is! Here's Jesus. Here's the one that saved me. Here's the one that gave me new life. Here's the one that paid for my sins. My old self is dead and buried. I am new. And Jesus is promoted. Jesus is pointed to. Jesus is proclaimed without you even opening your mouth. So if there's any professing unbaptized believers out there, man... I usually say today's the day to be saved. But for you, today's the day to come up to your pastor and say, I want to schedule a baptism. Today's the day, okay? Okay, let's move on. Back to the text. As always, when it comes to Jesus, as always, it's all, this is always true. When it comes to Jesus, the religious dudes are miffed. They're miffed. They're hacked off. They're upset. They want to know, why does he eat with his scum? Why is he hanging out with, with tax collectors and sinners? And all I want to say to that is, aren't you glad he does? Aren't you glad he does? Aren't you glad that at the end of this service, his spirit is going to be right here and over there and over there. He's going to be here. At these tables, 
through the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit, dining and communing and fellowshipping with sinners like us. It's too wonderful. I cannot attain it. I can't. I'm blown away that Jesus would want me at the table with him. <laughs> it's too wonderful. Jesus' mixing with the riffraff was scandalous to the Pharisees. They couldn't believe it. Calling a, a scum of the earth tax collector to be one of the disciples was bad enough. But now he's actually partying with them. He's, he's, he's feasting with them. He's, he's at the table with them. He's hanging out with them in bunches. He's with them. He's actually touching them. He's actually rubbing shoulders with them. Heaven forbid. They couldn't believe that Jesus would associate with people that they had classified as sinners. As if they weren't. Listen, Pharisees are defined by separation. Separation from people not as holy as they are. Do we tend toward that in any way? I hope not. And if so, may God show it to us and may we repent. I mean, think about the examples we get in the Gospels, okay? Like, like the woman at Simon the Pharisee's house in Luke 7, who comes in uninvited, starts weeping at Jesus' feet and washing his feet with her tears and her hair. And, and, and the owner of the house, old Simon's over there going, hmm, this man's not a prophet. Man, if he, was, he would know who's rubbing his feet. He would know that she's a sinner. There you go. And then in Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector Pharisees praying to himself. I love that line in the Bible. He's not even praying to God. He's praying to himself. That's as far as his prayer got. Because he's going, ooh, I'm so glad. I'm not, thank you that I'm not like that scum over there. Thank you that I'm not like him. You know the end of that story, right? Who did Jesus say went away justified? Yeah, the tax collector. The one who couldn't even look up to heaven. The one who beat his chest and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went away justified. And the Pharisee got back on the path to hell. Pharisees had nothing but disdain for those that they classified as sinners. But in direct contrast, hallelujah, while the Pharisees were, were described and defined by separation, Jesus is defined among the many other ways he's defined because it's too wonderful for us and we cannot attain it. One way he's defined is by grace. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Sola gratias. Grace alone. He is the only perfectly holy one who comes to people who readily recognize that they are not holy and desperately need his holiness. And while the Pharisees had nothing but disdain for sinners, Jesus has love for them, grace for them. 
compassion for them. And ultimately, forgiveness for them and the strength from the Holy Spirit to go and sin no more. Are we glad or what? I mean, are we thankful or what? In in the Gospels, Jesus is messing with the self-imposed legalistic system of the Pharisee, and they hate him for it. They hate him. In fact, in the very next chapter of Mark, we see that they, that's when they began to plan how to destroy him. This was, this was a huge scandal. We could call it the scandal of grace. Jesus is the friend of sinners, much to the, to the dismay of, of the so-called righteous. Don't you love what Jesus says in verse 17? And when Jesus heard it, when he heard their complaining and their murmuring and their whining about him being there at a sinner's party, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, I'm the physician. I'm here with the sick. I came not to call the righteous. You guys, you guys that call yourself righteous, I'm not even talking to you. But I came to call sinners, people who recognize their sin. So Jesus is not calling the righteous, i.e. the self-righteous. He came to call sinners. Again, are we thankful or what? Because we qualify. I qualify. You qualify. Don't look at me spiritual. We all qualify. He came to call sinners. The group that we're all a part of. Beloved, this is the amazing story of the gospel. This is one of the bottom lines of who we are as a church. God grants salvation and forgiveness to the person and work of Jesus to undeserving sinners who can do nothing to earn That's salvation and forgiveness. But there's a flip side to that, right? There's a flip side. If Jesus is the friend of sinners, and he is, he is also the enemy of the self-righteous. Isn't that basically what he said? I came not to call the righteous. I want nothing to do with the righteous. I'm not even looking at you guys. I'm not waving you in. You've already declared yourself righteous. Good. Good luck. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Jesus came not to be friends with those who think they are righteous, but with those who know they're not. He came to those who know they need a savior. To those who think they're okay. To those who are self-saviors, they're condemned already. And he's ignoring them. He came to the broken and contrite heart, not the proud, self-sufficient heart. Jesus came to the penitent, humble sinners who were mourning over their sin. Blessed are those who mourn, right? What's Jesus talking about there in the, in the, in the uh, Beatitudes? Those who mourn over their sin. 
He came to those people, not impenitent, self-righteous Pharisees who are denying their sin. Jesus came to people who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, not to people who think they've already achieved it. He came to gloriously and graciously save admitted transgressors of God's law. That's why Paul said in Romans 10, if you confess your sin and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus comes to admitted transgressors of God's law. But he has absolutely nothing to do with the arrogant makers of their own law. Or as Kent Hughes puts it, Jesus is saying, quote, to people who think they are righteous, I have nothing to say. But to those who know they have need, I've come. Listen, Jesus Christ doesn't give the time of day to the spiritually haughty. He has only disdain for the self-proclaimed spiritually elite. He turns his back on the spiritually proud. But, hallelujah, he comes and lays down his life for the admitted sinners. That means that there is hope for all who will admit their desperate need. No one is ever outside and beyond the reach of the grace of God and the one who is the friend of sinners, admitted sinners. So Jesus is the friend of sinners. But let me ask real quick before we move on to our, our last word, our last uh, descriptor here. Jesus is the friend of sinners, but who are the friends of Jesus? What's the flip side of that? Okay. Jesus is friend of sinners. But how do we determine if we're friends of Jesus? How do we flip that? Well, let's let Jesus answer it. He answers it very clearly, very straightforwardly in John 15, beginning at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Here it is. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Hmm, kind of like baptism, right? Okay. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Well, that's a deep statement, and we don't have the time to unpack that completely. But let me just say this, kind of as an overview statement. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying at least two things. From these four verses. Number one, our obedience is the evidence of our friendship with Jesus. It doesn't get our friendship with Jesus. It doesn't make us friends with Jesus. Remember, he comes to us. Okay. Then our obedience is the evidence of our friendship with him. Jesus befriends us lays down his life for us and gives us a new heart 
of obedience. Our obedience doesn't make us Jesus' friends. It proves that we are. With me? Okay. Secondly, I know this is quick because it's deep statement here, and I'm not doing it justice, but just for today, real quick. Second thing he's saying is that the friends of Jesus understand what he's done for them. Okay, and it reflects in the way they live. He understands what he's done. When he said, uh, I've called you friends for all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. He's, he, he, by his spirit, he, he makes his friends knowledgeable of, of the things of God, okay? And I think David expressed this principle beautifully in Psalm 25, 14, when he wrote this. Listen to this. This is one of my favorite, favorite Psalms, one of my favorite verses in Psalms. He said, he said this, the friendship, that's what we're talking about, right? The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. Wow. So friends of Jesus are marked by obedience and they're marked by an ever-growing and increasing knowledge of the covenant and all that it means. And we could, we could do a whole other series on just that, but we won't start that today because we're in the middle of one, right? Okay. So is Jesus your friend? Are you his? If not, today's the day, okay? Today's the day. Admit you're a sinner. Confess Jesus as Lord. And you'll be saved. You'll be saved. So let's squeeze in one more real quick. Uh, not a title, but very important. Temporary descriptor. And you're going to see why I say temporary in just a moment. Matthew 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Elah, Elah, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus was forsaken. That's our, that's our word, forsaken. That's our descriptor. And it's temporary. Why? Because it didn't last, remember? It didn't last. But it was the climax of Jesus' suffering and the ultimate proof of his friendship with sinners. That's why I couldn't, I know it's afternoon and I know I probably should have cut off right there, but this forsakenness is directly connected to his friendship with us. Because he's our friend, he was forsaken. They're directly connected. He was laying down his life for his friends. But it came with an incomprehensible and horrifically painful cost. Pain that we, we cannot even imagine. It was worse than the beating. It was worse than the nails. It was worse than the rugged cross rubbing against his, his scarred and battered and falling apart back. The pain of an eternal relationship from eternity past with his father that was suddenly because of your sin and my sin broken 
Think about it. A relationship that had been totally and perfectly harmonious. No friction, no arguments, no disagreements, nothing. Perfect, perfect fellowship between father and son. Severed for three hours because of my sin and your sin. But hallelujah, Jesus was forsaken so we could be forgiven. Jesus endured the darkness of the cross so that we could walk in the light of his glorious presence. Jesus temporarily lost perfect fellowship with his father so that we could enjoy his presence forever. Bottom line, Jesus experienced hell for three hours. He descended into hell for three hours so that we could experience heaven forever. So, what is your response? Our final word today comes from Pastor John MacArthur from his book of pastoral prayers. I I love that he published some of his prayers. And in one of his Sunday prayers, he said this. We have found in Christ all our happiness and all our hope. Grant us by grace the singleness of heart to keep our minds fixed on him, our lives surrendered to him, our words devoted to his honor, and our hands committed to his work. May the power of your spirit increase in us so that we might be more faithful witnesses for Christ in this hostile world, demonstrating the depth of his love, following the model of his sacrifice, walking in the footsteps of his example, conforming to the pattern of his character, bearing the marks of his sufferings, trusting in the efficacy of his death, living in the power of his resurrection and declaring the trustworthiness of his truth as he himself would proclaim it. To know Christ is truly a foretaste of heaven's glory. May we have a hunger to experience that heaven on earth in all its fullness until we enter the great heaven of heavens and worship and serve our Lord and Savior with true perfection. What a day that's going to be. Let's pray together. Father, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, we press on. Help us, Father. Grant us grace to persevere in this life where Jesus is already king, but his kingdom is not yet fully consummated. We fix our eyes on him and long for that day. And until that day, help us like Matthew, promote Jesus with our spontaneous living. To promote Jesus with our words. To promote Jesus with how we live.
We need you, Father. Apart from you, we're nothing. So fill us with your spirit. Keep us pressing on. Thank you so much for Jesus. Knowing him is too wonderful. We cannot fully attain it. But we love trying. Thank you for this time at the table now, Father. May our fellowship with you be sweet. And our fellowship with one another be encouraging. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for loving us first. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.